Welcome to this Journal of Neuro-Ophthalmology podcast. This is Prem Subramanian. I'm the online content editor for the journal, and I'm joined today by Dr. Mark Coopersmith, who is at the Institute for Neurology and Neurosurgery at Roosevelt Hospital in New York. And Dr. Coopersmith was the 2014 Hoyt Lecturer at the American Academy of Ophthalmology. And we're going to be talking today about his Hoyt Lecture, uh, which was entitled uh, Optical Imaging of the Optic Nerve Beyond Demonstration of Retinal Nerve Fiber Layer Loss. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. And I'm going to go ahead and we'll get started by asking you, uh, you advocated somewhat for the use of SLP, which had fallen out of favor, I think, a bit in ophthalmology, and showed some interesting results as to some differences with SLP versus uh, our standard OCT. Are you using it currently in the management of your patients? And if you are, how should we use it? And if not, um, you know, is there going to be a role for it in the future, or is it just an OCT world? So, Prem, thanks very much for asking me to do this with you. I appreciate this. And it's a, um, um, as I have said, um, said in my lecture uh, and in uh, the report that we published in, in now in the JNO, um, scanning laser polarimetry has lost favor because it has limited applicability for evaluating the, the eye. Uh, unfortunately, it's only good for looking at the nerve fiber layer. Um, and looking for or, um, injury uh, or relationship to the optic nerve. So it's not used by retina specialists and other specialists who want to look at the eye. And so it's, that's really why it's fallen particularly out of favor. Um, and so and, the, and little advancement has been also made in furthering the technology where we're on probably the third or fourth generation OCT machine just because the use drives technology. Um, so that being said, uh, I, I still use it uh, as, as long as I have support, you know, can get the parts for the equipment, which the, the company is not going to be making any longer. And, and we, we can use, it'll be particularly useful in distinguishing someone who presents with um, a, um, a questionable, a, uh, a diagnostic dilemma of someone with acute vision loss who has a swollen optic nerve. So, and of course, the differential for that for, 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 the, for the ophthalmologist and the neuro-ophthalmologist usually is going to be some pericapillary swelling from due to papillophobitis or, or optic neuritis or things like ischemic optic neuropathy. Uh, occasionally, uh, there's a question about uh, uh, drusen in the optic nerve. Um, and so the, the SLP is helpful if you think the patient has non-arteritic anti-ischemic optic neuropathy and, and it, or giant cellulitis, some ischemic mechanism, and the SLP can show a loss of birefringence that corresponds very nicely to the worst areas of the field, where it is not does not occur in patients who have sw uh, thickened optic nerves for because of drusen, or in uh, patients with optic neuritis. So it's very helpful in those questionable cases. Now, more importantly, it probably has a real role in research application because when we finally have some drug available to us that's going to have potential neuroprotection capabilities for the acute optic nerve injury, if you're going to model and study patients and try to look to see where there's an effect, you'd be unlikely to see an effect in areas that have lost their birefringence because it implies that there is a 
the axons are already irreversibly damaged and they've lost their microfilaments and tubulin so that it's unlikely that any drug that's neuroprotective is going to protect axons that are already irreversibly damaged. So if you'd be using, you'd, be, you'd want to you'd do your outcome looking at areas that were not irreversibly damaged at the time. So it, it has both research use as well as now current clinical use. And I also, what we've, I've used it in people, we use the people who have uh, retinal artery occlusions too to see the areas of ischemia. And uh, I, was, this is anything that I've discovered. This was known beforehand that you can show this. Um, the problem is, as I said, this is sort of a dying, a dying piece of equipment. And we're, we're hopeful that somewhere along the way that the OCT companies might come up with you doing some polarimetry on a polarimetry OCT, and there's some experimental labs who have this, but they're not commercially available. Great. Now, you've reported, Mark, that these changes you just described in the SLP seem to persist in NAION patients more so than in patients who have typical optic neuritis, that some of those changes seem to go away as the uh, patient recovers from the episode. Does it tell us something about the difference between the two disorders, and does it tell us anything about the difference maybe between a disorder like NMO spectrum optic neuropathy, where the vision loss is worse and recovery isn't as good? Do you think we'd see something different with SLP in those patients relative to typical optic neuritis? Well, so far I haven't really found that. So what, what, what we found with optic with patients with have swollen optic nerves with optic neuritis it's probably the, um, the slight reduction in SLP is, measure, is nothing more than measuring that there's an increased water content in the nerve and nothing else. It doesn't, it doesn't have any implications for the injury at all. But, and actually, follow, for following people who have had an injury, whether it be glaucoma or ischemic optic neuropathy or optic neuritis or NMO, SLP is as good as OCT for showing nerve fiber layer loss, and they correspond very well. So it's not superior to that. I think the only where place that SLP, again, is benef particularly beneficial is in demonstrating the, um, that you can see acute injury um, because it tends, to be l it tends to be less affected by swelling than the OCT, because when the OCT, the nerve is swollen from OCT, you with all the edema thickening and intraaxonal as well as um, extracellular uh, edema, you can't tell any early nerve fiber layer loss. So with those changes in OCT, like you just described, you and others have talked and written about looking at the ganglion cell layer and the macula of the ganglion cell and interplexiform layer complex, and you wrote about that in your article as well. And people are using that, I think, now clinically in part to try to tell apart typical optic neuritis, maybe from the NMO spectrum disorder and others. And it was very interesting that you've noticed that there is a lot of artifact that may be present early on in the general algorithm that's used and that the 3D algorithm that you had been using from a research standpoint might help to overcome that. Is there anything from the clinical standpoint from what's available to most people that they can use to try to avoid making decisions on the basis of these uh, sometimes artifactual findings? So that, that's an excellent point, and um, I think that um, most of the equipment that are available, unfortunately, the, that does not 
does not really um, adjust for this uh, artifact because they work in a, they work they, they these processes the algorithms work by looking for certain layers of the retina to uh, to identify and then their algorithm works off that. So if, they, if there's disruption because of edema or underlying other retinal pathology, let's say even an epiretinal membrane, those algorithms tend to fail and give spurriously low ganglion cell IPL layer measurements. Um, there's a new there's a new ganglion cell program that came out from one particular piece of company that may may do better with this, but I haven't had a chance to evaluate it, and I don't know anybody has looked at it in earnest to look at those issues. So I don't know that it solves a problem. But at least in my my uh, uh, review of this, I haven't seen anything that works particularly well. And now it's a problem, and that is it's probably an ischemic optic neuropathy. You can, with all of the with, the, with the, with the amount of swelling, or papilledema with the amount of swelling, there is an artificial, uh, a significant number of, of, of eyes will have this artifact. Uh, less so in optic neuritis because it tends to be less swelling, but probably about nine, I think there's, we have a paper now in press, probably about at least 9%, 10% of eyes that have, of all optic neuritis, will have swelling. Uh, well, we'll have um, this loss of or artificially low ganglion cell le le layer measurement to begin with. Um, I don't think you can use it to distinguish. I think I think it's, it's a question of NMO. It's very important. People are trying to use this equipment to try to distinguish optic, ac acute optic neuritis from acute NMO. And I think it's all this has all been based, as we know, on retrospective series, which are which are unfortunately flawed and based on how the referral patterns go, which is unfortunate. Um, and uh, there is nothing out there that really distinguishes these two entities except time and response to therapy, et cetera, uh, at this point. And so people were looking for some magical clinical pearl, imaging pearl, MRI pearl. It doesn't exist. Um, not enough for clinical practice. There might be a statistical difference between the two, but not enough for an judging an individual case when it walks into your clinic door. I think that's a really important point to make, Mark, because you, you and I both know that there are people out there who um, are tempted to make decisions on the basis of seeing a thin ganglion cell complex at presentation and uh, presuming that that is a prognostic indicator. And I think that this information that you're putting out there is very helpful in, in reminding us that we need to be uh, very careful in how we make these interpretations. Uh, the last thing I'd like to ask you is a little bit about uh, the use of OCT for papilledema diagnosis. You and Pat Sibony have done a lot of work on this. And wh where do you think it stands right now in terms of how we use it? Uh, should we be using it clinically, or can it give us a false sense of security because swollen axons might mask true functional loss or damage that's ongoing? What, what would you recommend to uh, people now using OCT in the management of patients with papilledema? Also, very, this is a terrific topic, and uh, uh, Pat, uh, Pat and I um, have been exploring this and of all of the investigators from the, um, from the uh, Nordic Intracranial Hypertension Treatment Trial have provided a, a data to look at to, to sort of prove and disprove our theories on this. And it's, it's, it's a, incredible what we're learning about the, the biodynamics of the um, optic nerve and the back of the eye in, re, in relationship to the intracranial hypertension. 
that probably has a lot of implications for glaucoma and understanding the relationship between CSF and uh, pressures, retrolaminar space, um, and glaucoma. Um, but we don't have the answer yet. <clears throat> and the, what, we, what we played around with and came up with was using the, uh, getting transaxial cuts, so using the, the, um, the programs that are designed to look at macula, the, all the layers of the, of, the, of the retina in the macula, and, the, and playing with that and adjusting that to, to look through, look, get a cross-section through the nerve. And people are now doing this more and more, and there's enhanced depth imaging, EDIs, that people are, are using with different machines that can show you the, um, we're looking at the dynamics of the neural canal bordered by the um, Brooks membrane and, uh, and the RPE. And we can see how that shape changes move back and forth. You can use those transaxial cuts to see Barry Drusen very well. And you could use the transaxial cuts to show the inward deviation of the RP Brooks membrane, which normally goes outward, in patients with intracranial hypertension. Now, the caveat is anything that causes increased CSF pressure behind the eye, um, an optic nerve sheath meningioma, or even a fulminant inflammation that causes just trapping of the CSF there might cause the, um, the neural canal to change that make it look like intracranial hypertension. But of course, that would only be in one eye, wouldn't be in both eyes. So it's very helpful. Um, there's, there's, we're now looking at, we're now looking at the um, OCT in terms of understanding the biomechanics of the different folds that occur in the retina in relationship to papilledema, and uh, there we, you know, and uh, there that that work is being evaluated now in, in for publication, um, and uh, and we're looking at this and the long-term follow-up of, of of those cases as well. So I think that all of that information that comes out will be very useful for people monitoring papilledema and using it for diagnostic criteria. Not prepared to say, just do an OCT and that gives you your diagnosis of papilledema, but I think we will get there eventually. Um, and, but uh, as always, it, it has to be put into the clinical situation, the clinical context. And for every for every thousand cases that we show that it works, so there'll always be cases where the where the where the uh, where the uh, thought doesn't work, you know, the technique doesn't work. But so that's always has to be put in a clinical context. But I think that we're we'll, we will get there. But we're in a state of uh, evolution as we can continue to look at this. That's great, Mark. Well, this is clearly a great body of work that you and your collaborators have put together. Lots of uh, interesting stuff still to be done. I appreciate your taking the time to speak with us today and uh, thank you again for giving the Hoyt Lecture.